Hello, listeners. I welcome you to the Asia-Pacific edition of the Herbert Smith Freehills Construction Law Masters podcast. I am Hugh Kien Hyung, a partner of Herbert Smith Freehills and joint head of construction and infrastructure disputes based in our China offices. I recently had the pleasure to speak with Mr. John Bishop, one of the world's preeminent construction lawyers. John has 50 years of experience in the legal and construction industries. He has handled hundreds of international construction, engineering, and energy-related disputes as counsel, arbitrator, adjudicator, dispute board member, and mediator in many countries around the world. John is currently practicing as a full-time independent arbitrator, but he wears and has worn many hats in his long and illustrious career. Amongst other roles, he has he was a founding member of the International Academy of Construction Lawyers, an honorary fellow of the Chartered Institute of Building, a chartered construction manager, a member of the Society of Construction and Arbitrators. I can go on and on about John's many accomplishments in his career in the field of construction, but I will not. I have known John for many years as a colleague and friend, and he is a very modest man. More importantly, we want to leave as much time as possible in today's episode for John to share with us his experiences and views acting as counsel, arbitrator, dispute board member, and mediator on the many significant projects that he has been involved in over the years. Welcome, John, and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us on this episode. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a great uh, privilege to be invited to uh, join this episode, and a particular privilege to be questioned by you, uh, an old friend and construction lawyer, one of the ones I've admired most in my career. Um, and it's also a bit scary to think that you're asking the questions, but I'll do my best. Oh, thank you, John. Okay. <laughs> To start, John, um, you started practicing as a solicitor in London in 1971, and that was like 50 years ago. For most of that time, you have specialized in the area of construction law. And the practice of construction law is nowadays considered a highly specialized area of law. But that was not the case when you first started practice, was it? No, no, Hugh, it wasn't. Um, back then in 1971, 1969, when I started with the law firm as a trainee, uh, construction law was just starting to emerge as a uh, specialist topic. But construction lawyers, of whom there were very few, were looked down on generally by other lawyers um, as being people who dealt with... Uh, cracks in plaster work uh, and um, highly fact-related matters with no real law involved. So my colleagues from university rather scoffed at the fact that I joined a law firm uh, where uh, construction law was a speciality. It, it's quite amusing to me to know yeah. that um, uh, one of the consistent sources of work we had in those days was from the big city law firms. 
uh, in London who didn't want to get their hands dirty with construction work. Um, strangely, the very law firms who now uh, have specialist construction units presenting international arbitrations in front of me. So uh, it has changed. In those days, there was one specialist QC only, um, and even he was only part-time in construction, called Michael Chavas. But it was just starting to emerge, and there was a group of juniors coming through, junior barristers, led by names such as Donald Keating, Ian Duncan Wallace, Patrick Garland, and more junior level, the likes of Anthony May, John Dyson, and Humphrey Lloyd. There were about three or four law firms who had a team of lawyers specializing uh, in construction, but they, rather like my principal, Jack Watney, uh, also combined uh, construction with dilapidation cases in landlords and tenants. And in fact, that's where Donald Keating started as a um, landlord and tenant lawyer, if I remember. The judges in those days who undertook construction cases, we then called them official referees. Now, of course, uh, judges of the Technology and Construction Court. They were not even full high court judges. Uh, so many of the barristers who, uh, a little later in my career, uh, were looking for appointments to the bench, uh, wouldn't take jobs as official referees. They waited to be high court judges. Um, and I remember back in the 1970s, we had a continued campaign to try to get uh, the official referee's role made that of a full high court judge. And as part of that, I joined a small delegation, I think, of with three others uh, who were summoned to the Lord Chancellor's office. I wouldn't name the Lord Chancellor at the time, a rather irascible gentleman. But uh, he explained to me that he'd done construction work as a barrister and he knew construction cases never involved points of law. And anyway, if they did, nobody would leave them with an official referee. They would refer them to a proper judge. When I disagreed and gave him some examples of recent matters that I knew, which had different points of law, I was being accused by him of being an impertinent young man. So that was how it was in those days. But the first appointment of a high court judge uh, was who did official referee's business was John Dyson. And he was a full high court judge who was assigned for a period to oversee the official referee's court. And that was as late as 1993. And of course, he had an illustrious career and went on to be the master of the roles. So it was very different when I started. Well, that's really interesting, uh, John, for that uh, little history lesson. Um, <laughs> so in your view, were there any particularly significant milestones in the development of construction law in the last 50 years? And if so, can you share with us uh, what they were? Well, yes. In, in the, the late 1970s, there was a recession. There'd been a recession in the UK. And then there was a sudden need for a, a boom in, in construction activity. And uh, the trouble was that many contracts were let, highly competitive rates, but there were serious material shortages. There just were not enough bricks and not enough concrete to go around. And even more importantly, there was a real shortage of skilled craftsmen. 
because during the recession, people hadn't had gone out of the business or hadn't been trained in the business. And so a lot of contracts ran into difficulties. And another difference was that in those days, I remember when I first read a construction contract and, uh, as a trainee, and I said to my boss, tell me about this liquidated damages business. Uh, and he said, don't worry, nobody ever reads that clause and nobody ever enforces it. And then suddenly in the late 1970s, government departments in particular, local authorities in the UK, suddenly started deducting enormous liquidated damages. And so uh, many main contractors uh, faced with insolvency terminated their contracts. They found a ground for alleging breach by the employer, often a good ground, and terminated the project, something that really hardly ever been seen. And the result was uh, there were um, suddenly a, a, a splurge of cases going through the courts, mainly the official referees, but some in the commercial court. And really difficult issues of law started to emerge in these construction cases. So things like uh, there were suddenly leading authorities coming from construction cases on matters such as a limitation of actions, tort liability. Um, insolvency issues, retention of title in, property, in uh, assets and properties, insurance matters. So, and the, the result was suddenly they, these cases started impacting on other areas of law and people started focusing uh, on these uh, difficult construction cases. So I think the milestone was this splurge of, um, the big milestone was this splurge of construction activity against the background of the recession. Oh, well, more history then. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> old, old men no reminisce. Old men reminisce. You have to. <laughs> and and as a construction lawyer, I find it all very interesting because you always find you always wonder what the source of certain principles that we often now uh, almost quote as uh, you know gospel um, in 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 when we. To speak to each other or when we talk to clients and you always wonder what's the source of that uh, that particular principle and I think as you've mentioned a lot of that perhaps originated uh, way back then in the in the 70s and the 80s well moving on uh, during your time as a practicing lawyer before you decided to become a full-time arbitrator uh, you have worked on a number of very significant projects. Are there any that were particularly memorable for you and why? Well, yes, I'm afraid I'm another step back into history. But um, perhaps the most memorable case for me was a case uh, which went to the House of Lords, um, which we then had the House of Lords. Now, of course, we have the Supreme Court in, in England and Wales. And this was right back in 1974, a case, though, which you'll know well, Gilbert Ash Northern versus Modern Engineering Bristol. Um, I was a very young partner at the time. Um, and the background, uh, which is why this is, was a significant milestone in my world and actually in construction, I think. Um, the background was that employers uh, had a habit of setting off um, sometimes trumped up claims against main contractors, and main contractors had a habit of setting off sometimes trumped up counterclaims against subcontractors to avoid having to pay. Um, 
And there was particular scope for this because the construction contracts generally in use in the UK uh, provided that um, arbitration of disputes uh, could not be commenced until after completion of the main contract works. So for a subcontractor, if you'd been the piling subcontractor and you had a, um, a counterclaim made against your certified sums, you weren't paid. You had to wait until the whole building was finished uh, before you could start your arbitration to claim your money. And um, in response to this, as in many cases, uh, the great Lord Denning uh, decided that uh, it, it was the court's job to try and solve some of these problems. And so what he did in a famous case called Dornay's uh, v. Minter, uh, in the court, court of Appeal case, uh, he decided that certificates in the construction industry were to be treated in a similar way to, to bills of exchange. And the important point was that the party, the paying party, could not set off a counterclaim against a certified sum. And uh, Dornay's um, was followed by courts up and down the UK causing really big problems, mainly for main contractors and, and even a number of main contractors' insolvencies. Uh, and uh, on a number of occasions, parties uh, who finished before the Court of Appeal uh, on variants of this, because everybody tried a way around this decision, um, they applied for leave to appeal uh, to see if they could get a different decision in the House of Lords. The Court of Appeal consistently turned down permission uh, to uh, leave to appeal, and so did the House of Lords. It refused to take them. Now, we were representing um, a company called Gilbert Ash. Gilbert Ash were part of the Bovis Group, who were one of the UK's uh, major domestic construction groups, and who therefore had a, a lot of subcontractors. Uh, many of whom they didn't feel had performed properly. Um, and so it wasn't a case on the standard contract, it was a case on Bovis's standard terms and conditions. Modern engineering had started proceedings to try to collect the money due under this, uh, under a certificate. Uh, but those proceedings had become dormant for several years because of uh, a counterclaim mounted by Gilbert Ash. And it took them a little while to um, read, I think, the Dornay's case. And then suddenly they reactivated this case before uh, the official referees courts. Uh, the sum involved was quite small and I was a junior partner. So um, I was given this um, smallish case to handle um, and uh, on the expectation that I, like uh, many before me, would lose um, based upon the Dornay's principle. Mm -hmm. And we did lose. We lost, lost under a very good judgment, though, by one of the then fine judges, William Stabb, uh, who um, indicated his great reluctance in this particular case to apply Dornay's, but had no choice. Uh, in the Court of Appeal, we were also lost. Um, and we were even refused by the Court of Appeal leave to appeal. We even offered to pay uh, modern engineering's costs 
of an appeal to the House of Lords, whether we won or lost. Um, but nevertheless, the Court of Appeals said no. So to, we applied to the uh, House of Lords for leave to appeal. And to everybody's amazement, we were granted leave. Um, so suddenly there was this young lawyer handling this very important case. Uh, in fact, um, the fact that we had been given leave to appeal became known throughout the whole of the industry. And, and we, uh, I remember we had a large number of law firms because this was before great things like uh, uh, even fax, let alone uh, emails, large number of law firms asking for copies of the judgment as soon as the decision of the House of Lords as soon as it was received, I think more than 100. And when we went for the full appeal, we were just, uh, as we were finalising our petition, uh, Ian Duncan Wallace, most people listening I'm sure will remember the late Ian Duncan Wallace, a great lawyer at his time, he published an amazing article about the whole of this prose called Set Off to Set Back. And that was, it was brilliant. We attached it to our petition. The House of Lords decided to uh, expedite the appeal and eventually found against the Dornay's principle uh, and reinstated the law and equitable set off. So this became the monumental case in construction for its period. And in fact, you'll find, I think, a Gildash case uh, quoted in textbooks to this day. On, on the law of set-off, um, uh, in that it reinstated a right to set off a bona fide quantified cross-claim. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it then took many years before the same problems of uh, claims against subcontractors arose again, resulting in the Latham Report and adjudication in the UK, which has spread around the world. Uh, if I may, another significant uh, project for me uh, was the Channel Tunnel project. Um, you will know that it was, in its day, it was one of the biggest infrastructure projects in the world. And uh, uh, I headed up um, my, my firm's team uh, handling the numerous claims and disputes that arose from this massive project. And we worked jointly with um, French law firms, one in particular generally, um, and the reason was that the contracting group was made up of five uh, English contractors and a consortium of five French contractors. And this was an interesting project for many reasons. First of all, it was highly public. Everything that happened uh, got in the press somehow. Um, it had been Margaret Thatcher's pet project, and on her principles of financing, she had said there will be no public funding of this project. So it had to be privately financed, which was novel in those days. There was then the issue of how you balance the, these two cultures. And not me, but somebody came up with the law clause to govern the contract, which said that the parties were to apply the common principles of English and French law. And in the absence of such common principles, the contract was to be governed by general principles of international trade law as applied by national and international tribunals. I stress I wasn't the author of the clause, and I and my uh, opponents, uh, we never really got to grips with uh, exactly what law we were applying. Um, 
The contract, though, contained an uh, ADR provision involving what's called the disputes panel. Uh, it was similar to a dispute board today, although we didn't know the word DAB or dispute adjudication board in those days. And it did actually adopt um, some dispute avoidance techniques. And uh, there were a very large number, more than 20 uh, disputes, if I recall correctly, referred to it from uh, some technical issues to one claim um, by the contractor for over a billion pounds on the basis that the uh, fixed prices for the fixed equipment uh, should no longer be applicable because of multiple changes. Uh, and I've often said in talks and other places that, in my opinion, without that dispute panel, certainly some of the leading contractors involved in the project would not have survived financially. And indeed, the project may not even have been completed or not completed as intended at that stage. And only one of those panel decisions was uh, challenged in arbitration. So they did a great job. And the project also resulted in a leading House of Lords case um, because what happened is the contractors threatened to suspend performance of work because the employer was refusing to recognize a major variation and to pay for it. The employer went to the English courts to try and get an injunction to try to prevent the contractors from stopping work or stopping work on that part of the project. And the contractors sought to have the proceedings stayed uh, from the English courts on the basis of a disputes clause, which involved the panel that I've described and ICC arbitration in a neutral country, name, namely Belgium. Um, and the main speech in that, uh, which really bears reading because I thought it was brilliant, was by one of the great arbitration lawyers of our time, one of the great lawyers, but particularly arbitration lawyers of our time, Michael Mustel. And that case has become a leading authority uh, on a number of issues, uh, such as the inherent jurisdiction of English courts to grant a stay in proceedings brought in breach of an ADR clause, um, uh, choice of curial law and arbitration, a uh, statement about the suspension of work and the granting of injunctions. So forgive me for reminiscing again, but those are two uh, memorable cases in my career. Well, thank you, John. That was really interesting. Um, those events, although we were colleagues for a long time, those events predate my time working with you. So it's all very interesting to me as well. Probably predated you going to school. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving ahead slightly in time, um, during your time as a practicing lawyer, uh, you had represented governments, owners, contractors, and consultants on projects. In particular, I understand you spent a significant part of your career representing contractors from different parts of the world, including Asia. In fact, in 2003, you moved to China, first to Hong Kong, and then in 2007, you moved to live and work in Beijing. Uh, I understand you eventually spent nearly 10 years in Beijing, working closely with Chinese contractors before you decided to retire as a practicing lawyer to become 
a full-time arbitrator. So what made you decide to move to Beijing? Um, during that time, I mean, it was a rather unusual move for someone who didn't speak a word of Chinese. <laughs> uh, I didn't speak much Chinese after 10 years either, I'm sorry to say, although I did try. Um, the answer is, uh, to your question, is I, I went to Beijing by default. Um, and I say that because uh, the firm had decided that it needed to expand its uh, Chinese uh, offering um, by opening an office in Beijing. Uh, but although I was um, head of the Far East practice at that time, uh, having retired a senior partner, none of my colleagues, when I chaired the meeting, wanted to go to Beijing. They all thought it was a very good idea to have a Beijing office, but they all had good reasons why it shouldn't be them that went to open the office. We had to submit our license. And in the license, you had to name a chief representative. So I put my name in on the basis that I was going intended to retire by the time this license came to fruition. And so my colleagues would have to choose one of their number to go. But uh, as time went by, and as I worked more and more with Chinese contractors, um, nobody volunteered. And my wife once said, one day said to me, why don't we just go and do this? Instead of retiring and go back to the UK, why don't we go to Beijing for a year or so, get the office started, and then you can retire and take up arbitration on a full-time basis. So that's how I came to go there. But I was also, I have to say it, it sounds a bit trite that, but I was also highly motivated by the fact that uh, it was very clear that the con uh, Chinese construction companies were becoming the major force in the world, the largest construction group in international construction. And uh, my law firm was then uh, becoming listed as probably the leading uh, international construction law firm in the world. And I had the strong conviction that you wouldn't keep that position for long if you weren't involved in the Chinese construction international market. So uh, I went for my year to 18 months to start the office. And they became in absolutely wonderful years. Um, and during that period, the Chinese construction companies, international business grew, so our business grew, and they started to recognize that there was some value in employing international lawyers. Thank you, John. And um, what are the, some of the differences in approach and challenges that you found working for Chinese contractors as compared to contractors from other parts of the world you have worked with in relation to dispute management and arbitration uh, in relation to their international projects? Yes, it's important to... Uh, understand the, I think, uh, the cultural uh, and the structural background. Um, one aspect of Chinese government policy for extending its influence around the world uh, at that time and continues involved um, the international construction business of its construction industry. So Chinese contractors uh, often charged by government with achieving a certain level of international turnover would take risks that most West contractors would not contemplate. For example, with EPC contracts. 
Uh, and uh, also in those days, those Chinese uh, companies, not having any real international experience, didn't have those risk assessment strategies that we were familiar with. Um, also, Chinese philosophy, and even I understand elements of Chinese law, work on principles of fairness, proper dealing, and avoiding damaging others. So Chinese contractors um, approached projects when there was a problem um, on the basis that the parties to the contract would have to work together to find a fair solution, sometimes share the pain, so that neither party was kind of fundamentally injured by the problem. This is how it had always been done within China. So when a problem occurred, a Chinese contractor would often take what it regarded, would often not take what it regarded as the aggressive approach of giving a notice of a claim, uh, nor presenting a claim, nor terminating a contract, nor even actually starting an arbitration. And it took some time for Chinese contractors to recognize that most of the world were applying different and much more selfish approaches. Um, often Chinese contractors also would have little understanding of the contract procedures that they'd agreed to perform. Um, and the, often some, the, even in relation to the obligations that they'd taken on. I recall asking one Chinese contractor who had taken on two very major road projects that were gone seriously wrong, uh, what at the time of his tender, he understood one of the contract provisions to mean. And he explained to me that uh, by the time they decided to submit a tender, the tendering period was very short. And uh, the result was that the Chinese contractor had not had time to translate the whole contract into English or Chinese. And so nobody had read the particular provision that I was referring to. Uh, also, um, Chinese contractors took a much more liberal view to their contract obligations. That's not to say that they didn't accept fully the obligation to produce what the employer needed, but actually following very uh, closely his specification uh, sometimes didn't happen. And I remember one particular case with a major drainage contract, sorry, a major roads contract, where um, the Chinese contractor was able to offer a much lower price because he decided he could provide a drainage scheme which would be perfectly adequate, but much less complicated and sophisticated than that in the specification. And of course, he was shocked when he was held to the specification, uh, even though his price was much lower. There also Chinese contractors had little experience of supervising subcontractors uh, and that they thought that when uh, they delegated work to a subcontractor, if that subcontractor was a Chinese contractor, then they put pressure on them by their various ways to perform. It was a non-Chinese contractor who didn't perform. They saw that as a problem to be shared between them and the employer. They didn't see that actually directly supervising and procuring the performance of their subcontractors was necessarily their obligation. And they also took quite a relaxed view to time provisions in a contract. So, for example, if they could show that they had done everything they could reasonably have done to progress the work, but it ran late, they saw that as a kind of common problem to share with the employer 
on the basis that they'd suffered the prolongation cost and the employer shouldn't be claiming the liquidating damages. Uh, finally, in, in, in answer to your question, the Chinese contractors would rarely want to exercise a right to terminate or to start an arbitration. And being state-owned enterprises, they were, to some extent, instruments of government. And government would even forbid them taking such steps. I remember, um, I won't identify it, but a major railway project being built um, by a Chinese contractor where the government employer had never been able to grant uh, adequate access to the line for the railway. And the result was after some years, almost no real progress had been made, but a lot of money had been spent. And uh, I said to the Chinese contractor, look, you have to terminate this contract. There is no alternative. So notices were given to terminate. And three days before the date for termination, the message came that the uh, president of the country in question had spoken to the premier of China and had said, look, please don't do this and terminate this contract. And so the government told the contractor, you may not terminate. Uh, and it took about four more years of agony before eventually the two governments no longer were talking to each other. And then, of course, the Chinese contractor was instructed to terminate the contract. Um, but I don't want to give uh, a bad or false impression of Chinese contractors. Um, they were naive in those days, certainly. But I've often said that in my experience, the problems on these projects were really bad workmanship. Uh, they were really bad design by the Chinese companies. They usually rose from cultural differences, from this different understanding and approach. And what I say, of course, didn't apply to all. There were some very major household name contractors who were very sophisticated. What is interesting, or was interesting by the time I left, was that um, the uh, people who had been involved in these international projects had by then got to very senior vice president, president roles in the Chinese contractor, and therefore a much greater comprehension of how international construction works um, existed. Thank you, John. I would like now like to move on to your practice as an arbitrator. And since 2017, you have been practicing as a full-time independent arbitrator. In today's world, there is often criticism of arbitration as being too slow and too expensive. So from your perspective as an arbitrator, do you agree with these criticisms? And if so, can you suggest why this is so? And what steps do you try to take to overcome these problems in the arbitrations that you are involved in as an arbitrator? Uh, yes, right. Um, let me preface my answer by saying uh, that this relates to international arbitration as opposed to national arbitrations. Uh, and the answer is yes, I do agree. Uh, that arbitration is often too slow and too expensive. And there are multiple causes for these twin but highly interconnected problems. Um, so let's look at one or two of the major causes. The usual debate um, uh, on these issues revolves around uh, how the arbitrators should handle a dilatory party, 
who fails to follow the timetable set forth for the arbitration and as to what sanctions the arbitrator can use without running a risk uh, of having an enforceable, unenforceable award or award that can be challenged. I may have been lucky, but this is not, in my experience, the main problem. And there are methods and, and ways of overcoming this, particularly cost sanctions are very familiar. But I have found um, that uh, the better the law firms representing the parties, the greater the ability is to overcome some of these problems by an efficient arbitration. Um, the traditional answer to, to your two problems from arbitrators is to say, well, we only account for a very small part of the real cost of the arbitration. And so the problems must be uh, the parties, their lawyers and their clients and their experts. But this really overlooks the fact that it's the tribunal who can massively influence the time of the procedural stages, uh, the length of the hearing, and the complexity of the arbitration. Um, traditionally, arbitrators have stood back and let the parties, and it's a consensual process, um, come to all manner of agreements as to how to proceed. Uh, and they've only intervened when um, the parties have asked them to do so. But actually nowadays, in the world of case management, uh, tribunals can make decisions on the timetable um, to allow a much fairer and more effective process. Uh, where the tribunal thinks that one or both parties um, are not being ambitious enough in setting the timetable, Tribunal, I believe, should go through every stage with them, challenging what they're suggesting and proposing more efficient timing. Uh, very often, in those circumstances, the parties will say, yes, I agree. I don't need three months. I can do the six weeks, you say. One of the great advantages of the um, COVID, um, there are not many, but of the, of the COVID problems is the use of virtual hearings. And virtual hearings where uh, arbitrators can see a problem occurring and can say, right, we will have a Zoom call on next week on Tuesday for an hour to discuss this problem, is that this kind of case management has become much more effective. A concern, though, undoubtedly, is that there are some well-known, very popular arbitrators who have just too great a workload. For arbitrators, of course, there's always the problem that um, with most of the institutions, there is no room for a collapse fees in the event that the arbitration settles, or little room. And so arbitrators naturally take on a workload that presumes a certain settlement level. Uh, I think this is a bad practice. And I think that the parties um, can do much more in questioning the arbitrator about his availability when they're appointed. The institutions have taken on this um, role and, and in institutional arbitration, the arbitrators are asked to uh, specify their availability going forward. But it's very rarely is it challenged in my experience, maybe because I'm not as busy as my colleagues. Um, but uh, I think the parties also should take up this battle. So um, yes, 
uh, I accept that uh, arbitration is cost too much, takes too long, but um, the reason is that it's sometimes it's not approached uh, on a proactive basis, um, looking at seeing how these two evils can be avoided. There is, um, from where I'm from, where I'm sitting. Uh, increasingly a move towards a memorial approach as compared to, say, an English-style pleadings approach uh, to the setting out of one's case. Uh, do you think, well, which do you prefer as an arbitrator and, and what are the, what do you think are the pros and cons to, to each approach? Right. Um, first of all, I should say that in relation to the two evils you just mentioned, um, a badly run arbitration uh, will take too long and cost too much, whichever of these approaches you adopt. So they're not, there isn't one of them that isn't a cure to the problem. And there are arguments in favour of both. Um, and very commonly, I have found that the parties agree on which approach they want to adopt. But where there isn't agreement, uh, it really is essential at the first case management conference to conduct a really quite detailed discussion uh, as to the substance of the case and what each party sees as the benefits and disadvantages. And this may require the arbitral tribunal to set aside rather more than the traditional hour and a half for the procedural uh, CMC. But um, I have to say that I lean towards the memorial approach. I'm being quite prepared to be persuaded in a particular case to a traditional, but I lean towards the memorial approach. And the reason is there still are some cases where at least one of the parties has really not thought through the issues. And I know from, and you will know, as a practicing solicitor, that sometimes there are pressures put on you just to get the process rolling on the basis that the claimant needs to show the respondent he means business, and he thinks that once he's got the thing rolling, the respondent will have to um, come and try and seek some solution. And sometimes, uh, acting for a respondent, um, you're under pressure to throw up every possible defence on the basis that uh, as the dispute emerges, um, you can sort out um, which of these defences is going to work, which one's going to be supported by the expert of technical evidence. Now, the memorials approach does overcome some of these problems. It, its disadvantage is that it certainly causes an increased upfront cost to both parties. But it, it can have the advantage, it can cause the claimant to scale down the matters in issue and to concentrate on those which he realizes can be supported by the documents which he supplies under the memorial approach with his pleading and by the witness and expert evidence that he provides with his pleading. So he has a better idea of which of these arguments will have any real prospect. And from the respondent's point of view, he now has a much better understanding of the case that he is going to face. And because he too has to prepare the documents he's going to rely on, prepare the witness and expert evidence that he's going to rely on, 
he has a much more realistic view as to what are the real issues and the ones that he's going to that are going to have a successful defense to. It, it, tell you what, it, it's interesting, you know, I've always thought it's strange that, um, as you know, most construction cases involve some element of uh, technical issues requiring expert evidence. Maybe programming, they may be engineering, uh, they may be process. And it's always surprised me that the timetable adopted traditionally in pleadings cases is that the parties are willing to uh, put off to quite a late stage in the whole arbitration process, when often it's almost too late to turn back, the time when they actually produce the formal expert evidence. They would have worked often on some informal understanding of the strength of their technical case. But it's only really after you've gone to all pleadings, you've done the documentary stage, you've had the witness statements, then the experts sit down and start writing reports and find that it's not quite like they thought it was. How strange to leave that such a late stage. So I think an undoubted advantage of the memorial approach is that these stages happen so much earlier. Also, under the memorial's approach, the tribunal has so much better understanding of the party's positions uh, and uh, helps tremendously in uh, the case management and in particular the documentary stage. Thank you, John. I'd like to stay on the topic of experts. Um, quite often we see between parties to an arbitration, um, each party puts forward expert evidence to support their case. And quite often the experts appointed by each party have uh, very different views on uh, an issue or a particular problem. And um, and, and sometimes, uh, especially on technical issues, you, 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 you wonder how can that be so? Uh, and how do you assess the credibility of an expert in those sorts of situations? Wow, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> um, I think the, um, first of all, I have to say that I think uh, a lot can be achieved by the arbitral tribunal in the way it handles the experts. So I like to say to the experts right at the start, before you start on any kind of um, expert opinion, I need you to confer. I used to say meet, now it's obviously virtual meetings. And I need you to produce uh, a statement to me of what you currently understand to be the issues and of the approaches you're going to take to resolving them. So for example, um, you'll know as well as I do those programming delay cases where it's as though the, the, the experts were in different worlds applying different baseline programs, different, pro, different methods of analysis. And I therefore asked for a report, a joint report from the experts on the approaches they're going to adopt. And I found this amazingly successful. Often the experts come back and say, okay, well, we've, we've now agreed what baseline program we're going to use, what method of delay analysis we're going to each use, what computers we're going to each use, what software. So you can do a lot. And I put into my directions usually 
that uh, the tribunal will have the right to call meetings of, it has the right anyway, but I like to put it in the, in the rulings, in the, in the procedural timetable, has the right to call uh, meetings with the experts, with counsel present, uh, to discuss the progress of the expert evidence. Very useful to understand right from the outset as, as the tribunal exactly what technology you're dealing with, not what the issues are, so much as what the technology is about, but also to try to uh, get the experts talking to each other and uh, achieving as much level of commonality as you can. None of that answered your question. Your question is, when we get to the hearing, and they have totally different views, how do you choose? And I have to tell you, I don't know a scientific way. What I do is I listen, I ask questions, I like the um, joint conferencing or hot tubbing of uh, the experts, and in the end, I form a view as to which expert I think is most likely to be right. And at that stage, the credibility of the expert and his the common sense of what he's explaining to me comes to the fore. I don't have a better method than that. Well, thank you, John. I would like to move on to your experience as a dispute board member. And you mentioned that you had experience with uh, dispute boards uh, since your days uh, on the Channel Tunnel project, uh, albeit you were not a dispute board member, you, you were representing parties, presenting case, your case to, to a dispute board. Um, in some construction projects, uh, in particular ones that are of high value and where the construction period stretches over a significant period of time, we have seen uh, the increasing use of dispute boards as part of a multi-tier dispute resolution process under a contract. Um, for example, we see this provided in the form of a dispute adjudication board in the FIDIC form contracts, uh, whereby a reference to the dispute to the DAB is a precondition for a reference to arbitration by the, by the parties. Um, I understand you have acted as a dispute board member on a number of projects um, I'm interested in hearing your views on the efficacy of dispute boards in the resolution of disputes on construction projects. In particular, uh, it is known that many uh, people or many companies uh, involved in the construction of projects uh, are very wary of dispute boards. Um, are they justified in being wary? Well, let me start by saying I'm a massive fan of dispute boards. Um, I really am. And uh, that's just not my hunch and personal experience because there are many statistical studies being done around the world, which you can get from the uh, DRBF, for example, um, that show that contracts with standing dispute boards um, suffer many less cost overruns and time overruns. Also, um, there are statistics show that the number of uh, contracts, projects, 
that finish up with arbitration are greatly reduced where there's been a dispute adjudication board, um, a standing dispute adjudication board. Uh, as a solicitor, I had uh, both good and bad experiences. Um, I had experience of one uh, matter where you wouldn't know the difference between it and a rather rough and ready arbitration. That's not the role of the dispute board, in my view. And in another, before I got involved, the uh, parties had agreed to appoint three engineers because they thought they were going to deal with a loss and expense claim. And they eventually had to decide the very difficult issues of termination of contract. And they got all the engineering points probably right and all the legal points wrong. So there is, uh, there are techniques to dispute boards, the appointment, nature of the people. But where you have a good, strong dispute board of people who really are experienced and whose stature is such that the parties are inclined to listen to what they say, uh, it can be very effective. It's effective in, in acting in some, uh, some ways in some uh, unseen manners. For example, um, I, I know uh, Robert Gateskill, who you'll know, is a great uh, mediator and dispute member, saying how one of the great functions of the dispute board, the standing dispute board, uh, is the fact that it's coming tomorrow. What he means is that uh, the parties, the contractors, the people on site, and the engineers, people on site, think, oh, no, the wretched dispute board's coming tomorrow or the next day, and they're going to ask us what progress there is on this issue or this issue or this issue. Can't tell we haven't done anything, so we better see how far we can go. So lots of disputes, it's suggested, are actually resolved simply because the dispute board's coming. I used When I was in China, I used to uh, lecture about dispute boards because Chinese companies, uh, as you've indicated, usually struck those provisions out of the contract if they could. And I used to say, um, I will give you uh, as long as I need three in my office to persuade you on any project not to strike out these provisions. Um, when I looked into why uh, they struck them out, I'm afraid it was pure ignorance. It was, and this is not true, not only Chinese contracts, it's true around the world. People do not understand what uh, dispute boards are really about and what they can achieve. And uh, there's a failing um, of all of us in the business, and particularly the lawyers advising clients, who haven't looked at the statistical evidence and haven't heard the evidence from experienced users of dispute boards and dispute board members. I think I would agree with you on your last comment, John. Uh, there's a fair bit of ignorance, and actually, for some parties, they think it's just extra cost to the project, which you can't afford if you are already on very thin margins. Um, but we see that the recent trend uh, in construction projects uh, is towards dispute avoidance. And FIDIC, in particular, in their 2017 suite of contracts, have introduced an avoidance role. Is this a step forward? If I say it's two steps forward and one step backwards, um, and let me explain that. 
I gave you some examples a moment ago of, of dispute boards that were wrongly constituted or where the dispute board members didn't understand their role. They were largely ad hoc uh, dispute boards. Uh, experienced dispute board members in a standing dispute board have for a long time seen dispute avoidance as one of their roles. As I mentioned earlier, the panel on the Channel Tunnel saw the need to have dinner with the chief executives uh, every, I think it was every other month, to discuss the problems and the issues and how they might be resolved. And experienced dispute board members have always seen that role. I know of a case involving a, a major uh, airport project where um, I wasn't involved, but I knew one of the contractors, and he said the dispute board just headed off so many problems, even to the point of one stage, one where the dispute board said, we don't see how this section of uh, the project actually marries and fits with that section. And the engineers all went, oh, no, he's right. So dispute boards can do a great job in the avoidance role. The reason I say two steps forward and one back is this. It's now called a dispute avoidance and adjudication board. So avoidance is even now in its title. And there is a statement uh, in the uh, DAB procedural rules about um, an objective of the DAB is to avoid disputes. Those are steps forward. But it then says that the avoidance role uh, in the rules applies, first of all, when there is an issue or disagreement, and in two circumstances, either the parties request the DAAB for assistance in resolving that, or the DAAB spots the issue uh, or, or difference and invites the parties to request its assistance. And I say two things. One is, well, uh, the risk is that that's too late. You want to have the avoidance role before there's an issue or difference. That's one. And the second thing I say is it would be very unfortunate if that is seen as inhibiting uh, dispute board members discussing with the parties during the course of the project um, problems as it can see them likely to arise and, and, and dealing with them. It, it's unfortunate if they have to sit and wait for a request to get involved. Uh, your role as arbitrator, oh, as a mediator, um, John, I am aware you are a big supporter of mediation as a means of resolving disputes. In fact, I understand you have been conducting mediations since the early 1990s. I also understand that you were the dean of the Faculty of Mediation at ADR, which was part of the Academy of Experts in the UK. And you were also on the first board of the Civil Mediation Council. So to round up this episode, perhaps you can share with our listeners some of your insights as a mediator, especially in mediating disputes between parties coming from different backgrounds and cultures. Uh, I believe you have some experience in this regard. So perhaps to start, what disputes in your view are suitable for mediation and when should it be attempted? 
Um, the simple answer is I think almost all disputes arising on construction projects um, are suitable for mediation. The common quoted exceptions are where there's an enforcement process, for example, there's been some breach of copyright, um, where uh, the issues uh, between the parties impact on other people, such as subcontracted or professional team. And so you don't have a decision that you would have in arbitration that you can waive at the other parties. But frankly, all those kinds of problems can be resolved um, in the mediation agreement by one means or another. And then, in my experience, there are never a ground for not attempting mediation. Um, when? Um, well, mediation only really works when the, there's a sufficient articulation of the matters to be mediated for the parties to recognise the benefits that might be achieved by the mediation and for the mediator to understand in sufficient detail uh, what matters need to be resolved in order to allow mediation to be beneficial. But once the issues have been sufficiently articulated between the parties, even if it's only in a rather general and non-specific terms, mediation could work well. And although mediation can work at any stage, and I've actually conducted mediations, a mediation, careful, a mediation, in the period between conclusion of argument and an arbitration and the award, the parties decided to see if they could come to an agreement rather than wait the award. Um, but it's certainly the case that it can be more effective the earlier uh, you start the process because the objective of mediation is to try and find an innovative solution um, which uh, before the parties get entrenched into their position. So the earlier the mediation, once the cases are, once the arguments are articulated, the better. So what in your experience are some of the challenges to a successful mediation, especially when you have parties coming from different nationalities and cultural backgrounds? Well, um, often the biggest challenge to a successful mediation are the lawyers. Some would say for the cynical reason that uh, they make more money from arbitration than the settlement. That is, I don't accept that for one moment. But uh, there are a lot of lawyers who don't understand the commercial imperatives of achieving the settlement in the case. And very often, um, the lawyer in front of his client needs to argue the case to support the advice that he's given. And you need in mediation to step beyond a recitation of each party's case to look at the realities and to look at uh, different kinds of solutions. On the other hand, uh, and sometimes the lawyer just get in between the mediator and the client all the time. Uh, I usually try to adopt a process where if that's happening, I say to the client, I just need to talk to you without your lawyer. I just need to talk to you without him for a minute. Lawyers hate that. But many experienced lawyers, experienced in mediation, actually make the process work. They come up with some of the possible solutions. They know when to make concessions and to how to help it go. Um, the other challenge sometimes can be uh, one's authority. Um, and this also leans towards your cultural issue. 
sometimes the representatives of the room do have some authority, but once they reach the end of that authority, the person who really should hear the argument and be talking to the mediator is back in the head office somewhere or in some government department. And a barrier is when you cannot get those people into the mediation room. Can I just pick up on your point on culture? One of the real advantages of good mediation is where there's a cultural difference. Because the mediator can, in his caucus room, with each party, understand much more clearly where that party is coming from, what messages he's trying to give, and can explain how those messages are not being understood in the other room. And the mediator can often uh, actually um, not remove, but certainly erode the consequence of these cultural differences. I've often said in, in lectures in China that sometimes um, uh, in a mediation, somebody suggests, well, you know, the settlement, you would have to agree to this, this, this. And the Western participants said, no, I will never, ever agree that. I will never agree to pay any money at all. And sometimes with the Chinese party, he says, well, you know, yes, we can think about that and let's talk about it more and more. And actually what the Chinese party means is no, and the Western party means maybe. And the mediator can get between the two of them and get a, a common dialogue. So you can make a big difference where part of the problems are cultural. In my experience as um, the solicitor, I, I have seen some contracts where mediation is made a precondition to the commencement of arbitration or formal legal proceedings. Um, and sometimes uh, you do come experience situations where you know that the parties have fallen out to such an extent that a mediation is unlikely to be successful. But because it is a precondition to arbitration, uh, the parties have to attempt mediation. And this, and they therefore uh, go through the motion of a mediation and inevitably the time and cost that would be incurred in that process. So what is your view on mediation being made a precondition to the commencement of arbitration or the commencement of formal legal proceedings? Right. Well, let, let me first of all just pick up on the um, issue you raised where the parties or one party thinks we're going, they're going through mediation only because the contract says they have to and they can't get to arbitration without it. And I do remember very clearly one case uh, in Hong Kong where at the very first stage, this was explained only too bluntly. I'm only here not because I think there's any prospect of this mediation, but because I want to get on with the arbitration. And the party settled a week later. So I think that sometimes the dialogue, you know, the mediator picks that up and says, well, I fully understand that. But we are here and we're going to just look at what the case is about. We're going to look at what your interests are, etc. But come back to your question. Uh, mediation is a, it's a consensual process. 
a mediation is far more likely to be successful where the parties have voluntarily come to the mediation, even if their expectations are a long way apart. Um, but I would make these points. First of all, when, and I'm sure you have this as often as I have, you, when you try to suggest mediation to a client, you'll say, now the other side will think I've lost all confidence in my case. I can't, I can't do that. It would just sound like weakness. I'm about to throw the towel in. I can't possibly suggest mediation. I think they're wrong. Because if it's expressed, if I'm prepared in mediation to explain my case and be asked questions by you about it to the other side, that is different. But if it's compulsory, then that barrier is overcome. Nobody has the feeling that by suggesting it. And the other thing is that in, um, I think it's really uh, very good in, in government-type contracts because it takes nowadays a very strong government official to suggest or go along with the mediation idea. But being government officials, if the contract requires them to do so, they will do so. So I think I think it's worth putting it in the contract. I think it's essential to put it into certain kinds of contracts with government and equivalent uh, kind of uh, organizations where it's difficult for any one person to take an initiative. Thank you, John. Then, well, we've, we've, we've talked for a long time. We've uh, talked about uh, your career as a practicing lawyer, as a, an arbitrator, as a dispute board member, and as a mediator. And so the final question I have for you today is which role do you personally enjoy best? Being counsel, arbitrator, dispute board member, or mediator? Or perhaps just happily retired and doing none of the above? Oh, <laughs> oh Hugh, that's a, that's a real sting in the tail, isn't it? Um, tempted to say I'm not going to answer. Um, luckily, my wife's out of earshot, so um, I can rule out the retirement one. Um, I have no intention of retiring until parties retire me. I have to tell you that um, advocacy was never something I enjoyed. I never thought I was very good at it either. So I'm really pleased no longer to do that. Um, but I do miss um, not being part of a team of colleagues. I'm very lucky, but you and others, to work with some of the really, really brilliant, nice people. And I miss that. Um, mediation, when you get the deal, gosh, it's a big high. It's great. Um, arbitration, it is very demanding. Uh, and um, I remember um, a past uh, Chief Justice of the UK, no, head of the Supreme Court of the UK, saying that when he makes a decision, he always worries night after night afterwards, did I get that right? And arbitrators do the same. But um, so anyway, the purpose of this waffle is not to answer your question, um, because I, I actually enjoy all of the roles I do. Um, there's a buzz in all of them. Uh, arbitration with two other really good, nice arbitrators is a great fun process because it's highly challenging. Um, 
and yet um, rewarding? I'm not going to tell you the answer. Well, John, I, I can't possibly force an answer from you. So uh, on that note, uh, I would like to thank you very much for participating in today's episode. And I enjoyed speaking with you. Um, and I hope our listeners will enjoy uh, this episode as much as I did. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Hugh. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you, as usual. So thank you very much. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.